Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Arjun Beatty is a second-generation Indian-Canadian writer. He was born and raised in Mississauga. Formally educated in philosophy, with an eclectic set of experiences to follow, his aim has always been to interact with the world in a way that keeps his curiosity alive. The Blood of Five Rivers is his first novel. Welcome, Arjun. Thank you for having me. Your background in philosophy certainly shines through in the blood of five rivers. It's filled with philosophical questions, musings, and references, and they also can bring the humor to the book. What drew you to study philosophy and what other experiences helped you as a writer? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess, you know, from a young age, I've always been drawn to kind of the bigger questions you know, what's the purpose of life and all these kind of existential uh, looming questions that tend to hang over people's heads. And most often people ignore them. But for some reason, they nagged at me. Um, and I, you know, I searched for those answers in a lot of strange places. Uh, the off put saying, how does it go? Uh, God and country. That's where most people find meaning. So I, I looked in those two places. I got really involved in my religion at a young age. Um, but I got kind of disenchanted by it when, you know, a lot of the dogma and uh, just the answers that I was looking for weren't there. And then after that, one of the eclectic experiences that you referred to that I had was uh, I was a reservist for five years, which was a very fascinating experience. I learned a lot and, you know, it was a great time in my life, but um, I didn't really find that patriotism was a place where I, I found the answers I was looking for either. But in high school and in university, you know, I took a couple of intro philosophy classes and finally that spark lit up in my mind. I was like, okay, I, I think these people are talking about the kind of, kind of things that I'm interested in. So um, I started off in economics, but I, you know, the pull was too strong. So I ended up in philosophy. You came from yeah. the dark to the light, maybe? I, don't know. <laughs> so- I think that's a romantic way to put it, yeah. <laughs> Well, the novel opens with the narrator saying that he will be unreliable and that memory is fickle, that's for sure, and searching for meaning in stories is futile. Nanak says his goal in writing is to unburden himself. Should we believe him? And what was your goal of presenting the narrator this way? Um... I've always been kind of drawn to the idea of uh, unreliable narrators and how strange a concept that is when people, you know, normally that comes out through literary analysis. People don't, uh, the writer will never declare that this is an unreliable narrator, but often narrators are reliable. Like I, I think if you're telling the perspective of somebody who's not like third person omniscient, you're going to have a bias. So I thought it was just a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way to start the novel by saying, you know, outright that this is uh, 
this is what is is the case here. This isn't going to be a reliable narrative. It's purely from the perspective of one man's brain. And uh, that brain has a lot of biases. And um, hopefully they were entertaining biases. But yeah, that was kind of the idea behind that. I think the second part to your question that was kind of interesting is there was a quote that I read a long time ago by this philosopher, Romanian philosopher, I think, uh, Sioran, Emil Sioran. He's referenced in the book as well in a different part, but he says something about how art is a way to, I'm not going to remember the exact quote here, but like halt the inner conglomeration of forces or something like that. And when you write or you create art, it's a way of taking all this internal chaos, objectifying it outside of yourself and you know, having something that you can bounce your ideas off of and, and, and kind of deconstruct in that sense. So I think that's what I wanted to get across from that opening chapter. It's kind of like a prelude, sets the stage for the fact that this is what Nonic's aim is, whether or not he'll achieve that, you know, you find out later in the book. So you write from several distances. At times you're writing as the narrator, Nanak, uh, reflecting on events at sort of that thousand foot level. At others, you're writing as Kaka, the father's close point of view, or Nanak's as he experiences events. So what do you think that fluidity between that point, that different level of points of view brings to the novel? And why did you choose it? So the, yeah, you know, I didn't really give much conscious thought chapter to chapter why I was picking a certain perspective or a certain uh, point of view. I just felt, I just wrote whatever I felt was like, you know, like there are certain chapters for, for Nonic where he's like sitting in a university classroom and I use a third person perspective, even though most of the time I'm using a first person perspective for Nonic. I don't know why I did that. It just felt like this is something that Nanak has divorced himself from. It's not, he's not really, you know, experiencing this in the first person. He's reflecting on it objectively, the way he's reflecting on Kaka's story objectively. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, maybe part of my intention was to kind of not confuse, but collapse the difference between their narratives. So, I didn't want to make too much of a distinction between what was happening to Kaka and what was happening to Nanak because, it, you know, it, it's kind of like a parallel thought process that's happening. So maybe that was the reason, yeah, just to kind of collapse them into a single narrative structure. One of the most surreal moments in the book is the scene at the German bank, which could have been in Monty Python's cult classic Brazil. Could you describe that scene for the audience and tell us a bit about the inspiration for it, please? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, that's one of my favorite chapters, actually. I think it's the first place where the word Kafkaesque can actually be used accurately. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. You know, I, I, would, I wouldn't really call the book semi-autobiographical. Like a lot of the stuff that happened in the book is based off of my dad's life. And he always told this story where he was um, in the, the way his story goes is he was in the subway in East Germany and somehow he crossed over or under the wall and ended up in West Germany and couldn't get back to the other side. And the guards were telling him, no, 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 no. There's no way you can go back over there. And he told me that story and, you know, maybe because of language barrier or maybe because he kind of forgot what the actual technical details of the not being able to go back were. 
to me, it was just like, this is the most absurd thing I've ever heard. And the fact that it happened in Germany, it, like this is a perfect example to drop in a Kafka reference and just, you know, try and make light of the situation, make fun of the situation. So I did my best to try and emulate what, what the Berlin Wall would have looked like from Kafka's perspective. And uh, hopefully I did a, an all right job. Um, but that is one of my favorite chapters. I, I find it hilarious every time I read it, read it over. Much of the dialogue between the characters is in the original language and translated in footnotes. So the reader experience is a bit like watching a movie with subtitles. Why did you choose that particular format and what did you want to convey to the reader through it? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So when I first thought of writing in the original language, it was all based off of this one scene I had in my head of uh, an argument between the son and the father. Um, and I was like, in that scene, the the father can't speak English and there can't be clear communication between the two because I think one of the things that goes overlooked in a lot of, uh, um, I guess, cultural stories is the fact that there is a strong language barrier between parents and children. Um, I speak to my parents in English. They often re reply in Punjabi. There's words that they miss and there's words that I miss. And, you know, we just kind of come to a conclusion that We've lived together for 30 years now, so they understand what I'm saying, but really there's always something lost in translation. And I didn't think it was appropriate to try and gloss over that fact that, you know, this is the way that I experience my parents. They speak to me in Punjabi and I don't always fully understand what's going on. And even the, the translations, I think if there was like a fluent Punjabi speaker, he would tell me that's not exactly what that means, but that's my interpretation of what those words mean. So, uh, that was really the intention behind that. I just wanted to get the point across that, you know, this is how we interact with our previous, our ancestors, our previous generation. I think it was important to preserve that. It was a very cool technique. It was fun to read that way, actually. So um, now the male characters in the novel are on the move or at least restless. It's almost as if when the grandfather ran from the division of the Punjab in 1947, that need kind of continued through the generations to keep moving that, that feeling. How do you see that sense of movement connecting those three generations? I guess from a purely physiological perspective, and I kind of hint at it in one of the chapters, it's an anxiety disorder. I think that's what, you know, if you were to pathologize it, um, more romantically, I think, well, it was one of the main divisions that the father had with the grandfather. So, you know, the grandfather ends up not wanting to move again, ever again in his life because he went through this very traumatic experience. And that was a division that I think was very starkly drawn between them. And then the third generation with Nanak, the challenge becomes he has this impulse to want to do something, to kind of achieve something in the way that his father did, but he's born in a place where achievement is more elusive, the, you know, the markers for success are kind of ethereal and there's not a goal that you can set and strive after, like physically moving to a location where you'll have a better life. So, yeah. Interesting question. <laughs> Another important image in this novel is the kara, the steel bracelet that Sikh men wear. During the novel, it transforms from a religious symbol into a way to transport wealth, a weapon, and a symbol of sacrifice. 
Was that an idea you set out to show when you started writing or was that transformation something you discovered along the way during the writing process? Yeah, absolutely. The second, the second one there, I, I didn't mean for the cutter to be a symbol that kind of carried all the way through. And then in the kind of the climax of the novel, it's a very important artifact. Um, and it, yeah, it popped out to me when I was writing that chapter, I was like, this object is more important than I thought it was going to be in the telling of this story. Um, and I went back and retroactively wrote a lot of rewrote a lot of parts to kind of emphasize the fact that this object still existed on Kato's hand. Um, and then the tradition of wearing it is also passed on to Nonic. And then he has a wildly different view of what it represents and what it means um, because he doesn't understand what it means. So, yeah, I would definitely say that that's not something I set out to do. But in writing the story, I was like, OK, this this is more important than I thought it was. We should shine a, a, more of a light on it. Near the end, Nak talks about how he never knew Kaka. Uh, he knew his father, a different man, and that once uh, Kaka's hero story is over and the family is safe in Canada, another story begins, shifting from the myth of Icarus to Sisyphus. Which version of the father do you think is more heroic? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so there is a chapter at the close of part three where I uh, reference Thomas King. He's an Aboriginal writer, native writer from Canada. Like The Truth About Stories, it was a very impactful book that I read a long time ago. And he talks about how the idea of the Native American was manufactured and the, the noble savage, uh, you know, that idea of like a, this retreating figure in history, uh, a very noble figure, that was something that the, the photographer of those photos set out to create. And then I make the analogy that that's exactly what Nanak is doing with Kaka's history. He's trying to pick and choose parts of this very traumatic, elaborate story to try and create a figure that he can sympathize with in his own mind because the person that he has direct experience with uh, falls short of a lot of the things that we would consider heroic. But who's more heroic? I don't know. I guess it would have to de depend on your definition of heroism because Dervader, I guess, the father who Nanak has experience with is heroic and in a different sense, I suppose. I mean, yeah, that's a tough question. I don't really know how to answer that one. I would say, traditionally, you would say that Kaka is more heroic than Dervader, but Dervader displays the kind of her heroism that is like quieter and softer, like being a father, being a reliable person, providing for his family, despite the fact that he has faults, shortcomings. So both of them, I suppose. So the book just came out recently. Um, what are you working on now? Are you planning something new or starting to write something new? I am trying. <laughs> it's uh, I had the privilege of having a lot of free time. This story I wrote during the COVID lockdowns. So, and I wasn't working at the time. So I had a lot of free time. Um, I am working now. So I'm trying to carve out time to write. 
Um, it's more difficult after a nine to five, you're a little more exhausted, but you know, hopefully where there's a will, there's a way. I do have a second novel in mind. It exists in my head, but uh, as anyone who writes knows, once you start putting that down on paper, it immediately becomes a battle that, you know, hard to fight. Will it, be, will it have any relationship to this novel or something completely different? No, absolutely not. It's 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 kind of, uh, I guess, more reflective of uh, millennial experiences and uh, just my life and my experiences more than anything. Yeah. Can I ask one last little question? I'm interested. When you were a reservist, what did you read to keep yourself going in that milieu? Like what? What brought you comfort? What brought you strength? What brought you company, as it were? During my time as a reservist, I was reading a lot of philosophy. Actually, I was in in uh, doing my undergrad. Um, I mean, you know, the funny thing about the military is they keep you so exhausted that you don't really have time for for mentally exerting activities. Um, I would say in that case, you know, it's the esprit de corps that they create. It's kind of the, the bonds of brotherhood that you have with your friends in the army. And the fact that you're all sitting in a hole in the middle of winter while it's raining sleet down on you and, you know, you can't help but laugh at something in a situation like that. It's just your friends laughing around you that, that gets you through those sort of things. So definitely fond memories. It was a very happy time in my life. It's interesting. You certainly can be a philosopher during those situations. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would say so. You know, a lot of the ideals that Canada is founded on. I mean, you're not thinking about it when you're in a foxhole, but, you know, when you're standing at attention, you can't help but be filled with a sense of pride about that sort of stuff. And then obviously, you know, you read stuff like Hemingway and you're just romantic about the prospect of war. Probably a young man's mind, but, you know. All right. Well, congratulations again on the release of your first novel. Would you like to read from some of your work for our audience? All right. So this chapter is called uh, 1956 to 1958. Two things conspired to greet the child on the day of his birth, heat and humidity. Of course, this confluence was neither rare nor unique as both of these elements operated blindly in regard to human affairs, and when the child was born, they were both at work daily. Even the midwife, who had walked 14 kilometers from her village to the east to deliver the boy, and was like many in her country, prone to a fixation with star arrangements and other potential markers of auspicious things, did not consider anything about the day to be rare or unique. While executing her duties, she held the loose assumption that this was nothing more than the birth of yet another unexceptional farmhand. The boy did not wail or cry as he emerged from the womb, as might be expected, but with large dark eyes he expressed curiosity, swallowing the world in hungry glances. The child's father, who was outside distributing sweet cakes made from ground sugarcane, was called inside. He looked at the boy and asked, Is Is he stupid? The midwife shrugged and slapped the boy on his rear, and then he went. Her hands, conditioned by the rigors, of subsistence living, were rough and calloused, and when he was handed to his mother, he found hers were rougher and more calloused. She held the child close to her chest, exhausted and still in pain from the delivery, 
When she had given birth to her first child, a daughter who was being cra cradled in her father's arms, she had been fortunate enough to be given poppy seeds steeped in milk. This time she was not so fortunate and received only turmeric steeped in milk. Many villagers could not muster the energy to care about the proceedings at hand. The few who had come to offer their congratulations did not stay long. Fields required tending and cows needed milking. In the heat of the midday sun, many were simply eagle, eager to find some shade. The humidity stifled the rising dust as it was kicked up by the Baba's bicycle tires on the single road out of the village. He arrived that morning from Amritsar to speak with the boy's grandfather, a man with a soft face, features too crowded toward the center, and a beard that was too easily pierced by the light of the sun. The old man spat on the ground as he spoke to the Baba, and it landed on the foot of the Judah, who was on his haunches, slicing tall blades of grass with a sickle. Neither man looked down, and Tuda continued his work, half listening to the conversation, which was not about the newborn at all, but rather about old grievances. The father, a predominantly silent man, timid more than stoic, watched the boy tremble in his mother's embrace and raised his voice again. He looks weak. But the wife was the midwife was unable to conjure any sympathy. She dipped her hands in a water basin, the water already tinted pink, and remarked, It's in God's hands now. The mother did not concern herself with her husband's worrying. Instead, she cradled the child closely, gently cooing to ease his migration into the world. The midwife collected her payment, a bag of grain which she slumped over her shoulder and exited the shady route into the oppressive heat. It was a long march back to her visit village, and she aimed to return before dark. The father said nothing more, his features soft like his own father, crowded forward toward the center of his face, but with a life still too short for old grievances. The boy had his mother's face, sharp in all aspects, a sharp nose, a sharp chin, and a sharp stare, though at the moment his mother's face was softer, an uncharacteristic sentimentality, and it rested on his face, on his large blinking eyes, and to him alone she said, Merakaka, my little baby. Here are some things that must be mentioned. The day of his birth was the 23rd of June, 1956. The location of his birth was Ahmedpur, a village on the outskirts of the farming township of Pakti, which is within the municipality of the Sikh religion's spiritual capital, Amritsar, in the state of Punjab. Ahmedpur is 8 kilometers west of Pakti, and Pakti is 45 kilometers south of Amritsar. Know that I include these precise and impersonal details sheerly out of necessity. Such brute specificity is apt to subtract from the sublime nature of occasions such as these. For the romance of mythologies exists in their obscurity, and as much as possible should be done to protect that magic. But it is also true that these events happened in space and time, and in order to chart the trajectory of our protagonist, we need to mark his point of origin. Now there is a schism a rapid alteration and reversal that occurs and is absorbed in the supple pre-conscious mind of the child called Gaka. The mud hut he was born in was home for as long as it took to hold his head aloft unassisted. Then he was routed from the fertile soils of Punjab to the sun-bleached gray tarmac of the country's capital. Here the streets did not kick up dust but produced a mystifying haze as the heat arrived and retreated as so many things did in New Delhi. It distorted the visual spectrum, elongating rims from a distance, pulling things in and out of focus at whim, and in general, 
offered a wobbly representation of reality. Here he learned to walk. He yearned, reaching forward with all his being, producing hasty steps that swung his weight wildly from side to side. The sturdy anchor of his mother's finger was there should he have needed it, but his ambition was too great. He waddled, 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 and collapsed, falling forward and scraping the soft skin on his knees and palms. The skin would scab and become calloused like the hands of the woman who stood back with her arms folded, waiting for her son to stop wailing and pick himself back up. The father left in the mornings to his coveted, yet inglorious job as a maintenance worker for the city's sewage and plumbing system. As he trudged knee-deep through the city's excrement, Gaka waddled above, tugging at the hem of his mother's chunni until she relented and took him to the bustling streets. Gaka breathed the world in, and he saw millions of people engaged in millions of tasks, alleys jut in and out of larger streets, and the smells of burning oils, incense, fried alu, golgape, and fresh manure from the sacred cows of Hindu and Sikh clerics, who shouted their admonishments and proclamations to half-listening pedestrians. The impression of a greater world was slowly seared into Kaka's mind, and with it, the axiom that all the wonders such a world might offer can be taken back in an instant. Trudging knee-deep in the city's excrement did not pay a high enough salary for supporting a family of four. It was naive to believe otherwise, so the fragile dream of the father was shattered by the pressures of the world. The mother, the sister, and little Kaka wouldn't stop waddling, were sent back to the pimd again. It was nightfall when the three arrived at the mud hut in Punjab. It sat at the edge of the pin, adjacent to the few acres of land that Kaka's grandfather had secured with his small fortune. Kaka's grandfather was too old, too concerned with old grievances, and too bitter because of them to engage in commerce. So his son's family would take the wheat grown on his land and sell it in the markets at the town square. Specifically, this task would fall to the young boy as soon as he became capable of hauling the weight of the harvest through the streets. But none of this was known to Kaka. All he knew was that he could sleep in the dusty corner where his mother pointed his finger. All he knew is that he liked the feeling he felt when his legs carried him forward. All he knew is that somewhere out there, something greater awaited. Our guest today has been Arjun Baby, the author of The Blood of Five Rivers, published by Palimpsest Press. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, thank you so much for having me. And great questions. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed them. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.